This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. I'm joined today by Amanda Eggert of Montana Free Press. Amanda covers environmental issues and has written a series of deeply reported articles about the complex and confusing access and ownership issues in Montana's crazy mountains. It's been complicated for the public to figure out where they have access without running into angry landowners and and where they don't. The crazies are a magnificent, wild, sacred, and mysterious island range in central Montana. Amanda, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. So where did you grow up and what did your parents do? I grew up just east of Billings, and my dad worked at an oil refinery for most of his adult life, and my mom sold insurance. Uh, They're both retired now. And how did you get interested in the crazy mountains? You know, I drive I-90 a lot, and it's always one of the most stunning pieces of that drive. And I know that it has these really complicated checkerboard ownership issues, and I was just curious about digging into it more. We also received a couple of tips at Montana Free Press about various land use uh, things going on in the range, and uh, I started investigating this spring. So we'll get into all of that, but um, let's talk a little bit just about the range to start with. I know driving by it, it is stunning and magnificent. Have you been into the range? Have you experienced some of that um, wild landscape yourself? I have. I've been backcountry skiing into a Forest Service guard station there. I've been backpacking also into a Forest Service guard station in the range. Uh, I have two-year-old twin sons now. I've taken them hiking into the crazies as well. So it's it's a really special place. It's It's stunning. Yeah, for the listener who hasn't seen or been into the range, maybe talk about some of the, the things that, that make it a unique and, and, and special place. It's an island mountain range, so it kind of pushes out of the landscape uh, without other nearby mountains to connect to, really. So that's kind of interesting and different. It's largely escaped a lot of the extractive industries that have so changed much of Montana's landscape. There wasn't a whole lot of... Um, mineral potential in the range. So it didn't have a whole lot of mining and still doesn't. And it also is too steep and rocky to log much. So there's been a little bit of logging, but it it's primarily been untouched by some of those larger impact industries. And so you mentioned a moment ago that the checkerboard landscape and you know, you're out with this essentially a four-part series about the access and ownership issues in the range and around the range. Maybe give us an overview of the state of play in the crazies. Why is the, why are the land issues so complicated around that area? Checkerboard ownership essentially means that you have private and public land ownership interspersed, and it looks just like a checkerboard. It creates some management and access issues. It's complicated for Forest Service land managers to administer. There are a ton of landscapes in Montana that have that checkerboard ownership history, including uh, parts of the Gallatin Range. Yeah, and what what is the what is the reason for it? I mean, why would you why would you draw up ownership that way originally? 
That really stems from government policy dating back to the late 1800s in order to incentivize railroad companies to expand their tracks into the West, the U.S. government set up a system whereby they would give every other section of land to the railroad company so they could recoup some of the investment they were putting into those tracks. So much of that federal land that was not the railroad's land later became, say, forest service, forest service land. And that's the situation in the crazies right now. There's public parcels and a whole bunch of forest service parcels that are just all mixed in inside the uh, Custer Gallatin and Helena Lewis and Clark National Forest Boundaries. And so that creates a variety of challenges for managing public lands, but also for the public that wants to access those public lands. I mean, there's this concept of landlocked public lands. Are they really public if they're surrounded by private ownership? Kind of describe you know, how tricky it is to access the range and some of the controversies that have, um, have popped up over the years around trying to get access. One of the people I interviewed for this story said that the trail system and the crazies used to look like a wheel with spokes going in. So there was all kinds of trails, both on the outer perimeter of the range and then jutting into the heart of the range, going to various Forest Service cabins. And many of those trails never had legally recorded easements, meaning you could go down to the county clerk and recorder and find that easement listed on a deed. Rather, they were prescriptive easements, meaning the use was recognized by the Forest Service because it had been historic, it had been um, notorious, it had occurred for quite a, a long amount of time. And those prescriptive easements are tricky to manage. And some landowners are more willing to allow the public to access trails on their land on these historical easements than others. So it's been it's been complicated for the public to figure out where they have access without running into angry landowners and, and where they don't. It sounds like in some cases, you know, I've read stories of people hiking on these trails and encountering you know, security cameras and almost almost like a form of being trapped by landowners, if you will. That's maybe not the right language, but um, almost like they were staked out, if you will on a hike and you know they're following a trail that's on a map and I'm sure the landowner is saying hey I own this land I have a deed to this land it's it's my land and I can can enforce my property rights so yeah it's got to be kind of a super tough for both recreationalists and landowners to to kind of to to manage this how does the forest service kind of try to navigate it it sounds like the situation you're describing is untenable and maybe reaching ahead. Yeah, I can sympathize with the Forest Service's position because they don't want an adversarial relationship with the landowners that they have to interact with so regularly. But at the same time, the public is asking for them to continue exercising the historical easements that those trails have long enjoyed. And they're asking for the Forest Service to not only recognize the public's right to access those trails, but also to maintain them and to keep up signs when landowners tear them down or put up no trespassing signs or install cameras to monitor a trail's use. Yeah, it's, it's a hard one. The Custer Gallatin National Forest approach has kind of changed over the years. 
if you talk to public land advocates, they used to be better about trying to get in there and maintain trails and tear down no trespassing signs. And recently they've been favoring more collaborative approaches that are perhaps less adversarial or controversial in the eyes of landowners, but also weaker in the, in the eyes of members of the public or some of the members of the public. Yeah, and I suppose one thing I learned through your reporting is that some of the landowners aren't just private folks. They're, they're large corporations. Uh, Altria, for example, owns a large ranch in that area. And so when you start to sort of think about these large corporate interests as the landowners, that, that maybe kind of fuels the, the public interest or the public uh, concern for the issue on some new dimensions. One thing that's worth noting is Altria slash Philip Morris used to own the Crazy Mountain Ranch, but they actually sold it. Oh, they have. To, okay. okay. Yep. Yeah. It's officially, uh, the deed has officially transferred as of um, early July. But I guess the point being is like when I, when I, you know, you sort of think of it as a private, you know, family that owns a ranch, but it's, it's not necessarily that. It's maybe there's some of that, but there's also some corporate interest here. Yes. Yes, that's true. Uh, For something like 20 years, Philip Morris owned and operated Crazy Mountain Ranch, and it was used as kind of a dude ranch for smokers loyal to the Marlboro brand. Smokers loyal to the Marlboro brand, yeah. Yeah, it was like a sweepstakes type situation where uh, if you could convince the company of your loyalty to the brand, they would uh, cover your airfare, they would set you up with all kinds of gear, and then they would set you loose on the ranch to go snowmobiling and skeet shooting and fly fishing or cross-country skiing. It's kind of an eclectic offering. We'll be back to our conversation with Amanda Eggert after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hi, I'm Nora Sachs. I'm the host and reporter of Richest Hill, a podcast from Montana Public Radio, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Amanda Eggert about the vexing land access issues in Montana's crazy mountains. So there have been productive uh, solutions made uh, both on the west and south side as far as, you know, trying to find compromise between landowners and, and access advocates. Can you describe some of the, the, the work that's been done to um, resolve some of these conflicts, particularly on the south side? Sure. This winter, the Custer Gallatin National Forest decided to move forward with a land swap proposal on the south side involving two ranches. Uh, this was something that was several years in the works. I think anyone who's worked on land swaps with federal agencies can tell you it's a long, time-intensive, and often costly process. But they they brought it to resolution. And initially, there were actually three ranches considered for the land swap proposal. But the Forest Service decided not to move forward with the one involving Crazy Mountain Ranch out of concern that it didn't have a whole lot of public support. And so how do these proposals kind of come together? Is it just, you know, we'll, we'll trade you? two squares for two squares? Is that kind of how it works? Or like, it's, it's, I'm sure it's more complicated than that, but like how, how do these kind of things get pieced together? The proposals I've seen for the Crazy Mountains 
involve square mile sections of land. Okay. It can be, the proposals can be put together by the Forest Service or they can be brought to the Forest Service for review, as is the case with the land swap proposal that will consolidate some checkerboard along the eastern side of the range. But they ultimately do need Forest Service approval and they ultimately will go before the public for public comment. They'll have an environmental impact study. There's a pretty rigorous process involved. Sure. And you referenced the the proposal kind of coming forward on the east side, and you've written extensively about that. One of the things that, that caught my eye, and I'm sure it caught other folks' eyes, is the involvement of the Yellowstone Club. Um, and, you know, the, the point about that the Yellowstone Club is engaged in, in a potential land swap over up toward their, their property near Big Sky. Talk about that proposal. It seems pretty complicated, but maybe a way to some sort of resolution. There seems to be some promising aspects of it. So the Yellowstone Club's involvement in the Eastside land swap definitely did raise some eyebrows in Park and Sweetgrass counties. As I understand it, the Yellowstone Club had been pursuing a land swap near their property uh, south of Big Sky, But it wasn't a real big priority for the Forest Service to execute that land swap because there were other land use issues that were more troublesome to the Forest Service during that time. Yellowstone Club decided that they could offer some expertise for a more high priority land swap. So they ended up hiring two consultants to work with the efforts of the Crazy Mountain Access Project and to to pull together a a proposal that they could then submit to the Forest Service that would not only include the swap that they were seeking in Big Sky, but also roll in um, a more complicated land swap proposal on the east side of the crazies. And I'm sure that involved, you know, some of you you mentioned, you know, some of the resources that the Yellowstone Club could bring to bear, whether it's subsidizing some of the environmental impact study and the building of trail. That's one of the the pieces of this uh, proposal is the, 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 the construction of 22 miles, I believe, of trail that would provide some public access. Is that right? Yes, they're offering to cover the construction cost for a reroute of the East Trunk Trail. That's one of those trails that has some disputed ownership and has been blocked by landowners for quite some time now. And do we know, like, I mean, roughly how much money we're talking about when we're talking about 22 miles of rerouted trail? I think they're estimating the cost to be over a million dollars. I think the larger cost is actually just associated with executing the real estate transaction. Unbeknownst to me before I started doing this reporting, it's a really expensive and time-intensive process. And so what are the factors that make it so expensive? Is it is it mostly the legal costs or are there commissions associated with the size of these plots of land? Do they get commercially valued or like how, do, how does it work? To How do the costs go, go up so much? I think a big component of the, the cost piece of the equation is just all the study that goes into sure. one of these proposals. So an environmental impact statement is not cheap to to complete. Um, mm-hmm. Taking public comment over several months is not cheap to do. And be- and before it even officially enters the public process, it goes through sort of a pre-approval or vetting process. So there's a lot of agency resources involved. 
Yeah, and, and so on the other side of that, though, there's some the, the public are concerned on a variety of dimensions. You know, I've heard um, some concerns from backcountry hunters and anglers saying, you know, it's going to swap some prime, uh, you know, animal habitat or game habitat for a habitat that's not as uh, as as promising for for hunters, I suppose. Yeah, talk about some of those kind of public side of the interest ledger and, and, and what maybe some of us listeners should be concerned about. I think among those who are concerned about the proposal, there are three primary concerns. One is the one that you just mentioned, that the the lowlands that are currently Forest Service parcels that would be traded into private ownership are really good game habitat, and hunters don't want to give that up. The second concern is that the process has a lot of landowner input. And so although the Forest Service stands to gain more acres, the landowners are really kind of driving the conversation there. And the third component is that the Forest Service might be stepping away from contested trails rather than than fighting for them. They would sign over any easement interest for East Trunk Trail, for example. Okay, so these historical easements that you mentioned at the onset of our conversation, walking away from those potentially carries some some significant um, consequences. And in the public's view, that 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 those are that's a public asset that the Forest Service shouldn't um, relinquish quite so easily. Exactly, I think. Among people like Friends of the Crazy Mountains, there's a lot of interest in how this all unfolds because precedent could be set either way. Mm. It could be set in the direction of fighting for contested trails and and establishing legal easements on, on deeds, or it could go the other way where it generates a measure of momentum for the agency to abandon some of the stickier access issues. Yeah, and I, could, I would suppose from one perspective, um, from the one agency perspective, is that those are that's just a way to expedite processes and outcomes and to avoid conflict. And so I could see that as, as being attractive to some managers. However, yeah, you're right. The, the precedent implications are, uh, are stark if you start walking away from those sorts of things. I think something that's interesting about this conversation, too, is that the Forest Service I think feels a little bit constrained by its budget and its staffing right now. I think, you know, based on some, on a letter that I read that was sent to Senator Steve Daines by Mary Erickson, the Custer Gallatin forest supervisor, I think that they would like to pursue resolution on some of these trails by getting written legal easements but they just don't have the manpower, essentially, to make it happen. You know, you mentioned early on that, that the crazies have been spared from a lot of extraction industry just due to some of the qualities of the landscape. However, there have been proposals at various times for, you know, helicopter skiing and, and other sorts of um, sort of co- more commercial interests in the range. Are there commercial uh players in the mix here that, that want to see this this proposal either go through or, or not go through? What's the commercial side of the conversation? That's a great question. 
One of the complexities around this issue is that not only did the Yellowstone Club help facilitate the land swap proposal, the company that owns the Yellowstone Club, an entity called Cross Harbor Capital Partners, recently purchased the Crazy Mountain Ranch, okay. right? So that created some questions around their intentions for potentially a residential development in the range or potentially a heliskiing operation. Once the announcement of that ranch sale was officially issued, Cross Harbor Capital Partners said that they don't have plans to do a residential development on Crazy Mountain Ranch, and there are no plans to do commercial hollow skiing on Crazy Mountain Ranch right now either. So it definitely muddies the waters a little bit. Yeah, I suppose it does. And another issue we should probably address is kind of the tribal concern as well. Crazy Peak in particular and a lot of the range has been sacred ground for the Crow tribe in particular. Crazy Peak is part of private ownership at the moment. Talk about the tribal aspect and and, and how the tribal communities are, are looking at this issue and trying to express their voice as well. Right, the Crazy Mountains are really important for the Crow people in particular. And in fact, the Crow Reservation used to be much, much larger than it currently is. As the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1851 largely created the reservation along river boundaries, and it included almost all of the Crazy Mountains. It was said that enemy tribes wouldn't follow the Crow into the range, and it's also been a very special place for them in terms of spiritual traditions. It's it's said that Chief Plenicu received a vision when he was a young boy fasting in the range that guided his approach to interactions with the whites. So it's definitely important for the Crow. There is a component of the East Side land swap proposal by that would allow members of the Crow Nation to access Crazy Peak, which is currently in private ownership. So I think that's something that has been interesting to watch. And it definitely has the support of Shane Doyle, somebody who's been working on the land swap proposal and very active on this issue in the last several years. And so, you know, as you're, as you're looking at this and trying to put it in a, in a broader context, I mean, this, this checkerboard issue is not necessarily unique to the crazies. It's particularly salient in that area now. You You mentioned that these issues have existed elsewhere in, in, in Montana. Are there any examples in your reporting of, of particularly successful resolutions of these land conflict issues? Yeah. So Erica Lighthizer, who is a member of the Crazy Mountain Access Project, says that the Gallatins and the Bridgers also used to have a whole bunch of checkerboard. And part of the reason that they enjoy so much easy access for the public now is because much of that checkerboard was consolidated. And it's it's wild to look at old maps of the Crazy Mountains because it was literally every other section. It was completely riddled with checkerboard, whereas now there are sections of it, but it's not nearly as broken up as it used to be. And so how long ago were those, those checkerboard issues in the Gallatins and the Bridgers resolved? I want to say for the Gallatins, it was the 1990s. Okay, so relatively recently. But some examples of, you know, of resolution. And, you know, kind of as you're looking at this, are there, you know, are there voices that are unheard or, or unrepresented or like 
What are the aspects of the story that like really kind of get your hackles up as, as, as a journalist? And what are you looking for as we kind of move forward here? I think one thing I've heard recently that is a little bit concerning and something that I hope to look into in the future is the fact that the Forest Service has argued that several of the contested trails are just not viable. So whereas before they knew that they were going to get some pushback, but they were going to try to maintain public access to contested trails. Now it sounds like they're backing off on that quite a bit. And somebody I spoke with from Backcountry Hunters and Anglers said he wonders if part of the reason the Forest Service is taking that approach now is that it will make it easier to get the east side land swap proposal through. Yeah, all these trade-offs of considerations and conflict, as you, as you mentioned, this is a particularly complicated situation. And I suppose that's why it's attractive to you, to, to you as a journalist. There's so many dimensions to it. In our remaining minutes, Amanda, let's pull the lens out and just talk about more broadly, you know, I know you, you, you report on environmental issues. What are some other stories that are kind of, you kind of have your eye on and, and, and what's going to be coming next uh, from your beat? I have been really interested in wildfire issues for a long time, having been a wildfire, wildland firefighter myself for quite a while. But I think there's a really interesting debate going on right now about active forest management. It's a term you hear politicians use quite a bit and whether it's effective in mitigating wildfire risk and if so, where. So that's one thing that I'll be working on. I've also been doing a fair bit of reporting around climate change recently and energy policy. So there's all kinds of interesting stories coming out of both of those two subject areas. Fantastic. Both important topics. We look forward to, to reading more from you. Amanda, your, your, your writing is fantastic. Your reporting is, uh, is incredible. I encourage all listeners to check it out. Where can people find your work online if they're interested in reading more from you? MontanaFreePress.org. All right. Amanda Eggert, thanks very much and keep up the good work. All right. Thanks so much for the conversation. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. AJ Williams is our producer, BTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.